0: So here we are on September 11th, 2022, 11 years after uh, just the tragic, tragic events of 9 11. And if you guys remember back to that time, the churches were full. People saw the devastation, they saw all the th- many of the things that they had put their hope and their trust in, they crumbled because they were things that just couldn't bear the weight of their trust. And so they started asking fundamental questions why am I alive why do I exist is there a God if there is a God has he revealed himself has he spoken and if he has spoken what has he said and what must we do in response to what he, he has said those are all deep philosophical questions about our existence And Paul, as he writes this letter to Rome, Rome, uh, the church in Rome, it's often easy to look at a book of the Bible and just think of it as just one of many books in the Bible and miss out on truly what this document is. This is a letter written by a real man who had a very real transformative experience with Jesus Christ Was given the gift of uh, taking that message first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And it was this man who sat with a deep desire to go to Rome, knowing that if he could get to Rome and spread that message there, he could use it as as a platform to take that message to the entire world. And he sat down and he put pen to paper and he wrote a book of philosophy, really. Now you may think of philosophy as worldly philosophy, but that word philosophy, it's a study of why we exist. What is the meaning of life? And that day 11 years ago, people were asking those questions, Paul answers them. If you're you're here this morning, and I know sometimes we're preaching to the choir, But if you have friends that are asking those questions, set aside time to go through the book of Romans because Paul answers this this essential question that every human needs to ask, is there a God? Whether you wanna face that question or not, it is monumental in your life. Is there a God? Paul would say, well, look at creation. Is it organized? Well, you may look at your home and say, no, not really. But think about it. When we look at the human body, do we really think, oh, that that was an accident? That was mutation after mutation that just happened to breed a new set of species, a better set of species, a more intelligent set of species. And we just happen to be the only species that can ask these questions. That we can be self aware and say, Why am I here? Why do I exist? My dog has never asked that question. <laughs> but we can ponder our existence and we say, Oh, no, that's just all by accident. Paul says, Look at the universe. If you just look at the rare earth that we live on, and the distance from the sun, and the distance from the moon to the earth, the fact that we can live and breathe. On this rock that's floating through a vast universe do we really think oh this is just an accident is there a God well if you say yes there's still more questions to ask right if there is a God what kind of God is he is he a God that set everything in motion and then just pulled back and he's watching from a distance like he's watching a sitcom well this is pretty comical look at how they're interacting with one another not involved in the day-to-day lives of His creation, has he made himself known? Has he revealed himself? And if he has, how? Paul would say he's revealed himself through the prophets, through the priests, through the nation of Israel, through his word, and finally through his son, Jesus Christ. He has made himself known, he desires to be known. Okay, so what has he said? What, what has he said? What has he communicated? And that's what Romans is all about, isn't it? Who God is, what he has said, what he has done, and what is our reasonable response to all of that? It is the summation of all of Christian beliefs and Christian living, what we believe and what we should do. That's a pretty mighty book, isn't it? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. And here we are coming to a close. What we believe and how are we to live. So again, is there a God? The believer would say, absolutely. Has God revealed himself? He has. And how has he made himself known? Through his son, Jesus Christ, and his word. And Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And what has he said? Well now we, as we've studied the book of Romans, we know how we must live, but I wanna pose one more question. I know a lot of questions to begin, but why? We know from Romans 12:1 in light of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection that we should now therefore submit ourselves as living sacrifices present ourselves as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to the Lord which is our reasonable act of worship. But why? we know we should live in unity we know we should prefer others above ourselves we know we should live lives of service and humility and care for one another because we know that by our love for one another they will know we're followers of Christ but why to what end so that we have healthy marriages so we wake up in the morning and say yeah I got a purpose this morning so that our relationships are healthy what is to what end those are all great fruits of walking in the spirit but life is really hard isn't it just because we're followers of jesus doesn't mean that we are immensely wealthy and healthy and have everything that our flesh wants despite what some would say well paul makes it very clear to what end Look at Romans chapter 15. We're gonna look at verse seven. And we're gonna build the foundation there. Guys, this is why we live and move and have our being. Paul says, receive one another, just as Christ also received us so that you may have your best life now. So that your bank account may be full. So that you can find that spouse that you so desperately want. No, what does it say? To the glory of God. Five words that is are really the foundation of the book of Romans. To the glory of God. Our primary mission as a church isn't simply to lead people to Christ or carry the message. We know the spirit does the work, but carry the message of the gospel. That's one of our right responsibilities, but to what end? To the glory of God. Now, we can use a term like that and automatically our brains are like, man, I've heard that a 100 times, I still don't know exactly what that means. What's the glory of God? What is the glory of God? And why is it so important? But let me remind you guys, this is the reason we pursue unity. This is the reason we avoid disputes over non-essentials. This is the reason we are called to use our gifts to build one another up and humbly put the needs of others above our own. This is the reason we do not repay evil for evil, but we overcome evil with good and bless those who curse us. This is the reason we submit to earthly authority to The glory of God so what does that mean well we know it was Jesus's chief aim if you would ask Jesus why he was doing what he was doing he would say to glorify my father in heaven in John 17 in the garden Jesus prays the hour has come glorify me so that I may glorify you and he goes on to pray I have glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So what does it mean? How did Jesus glorify the Father? And how did the Father glorify him? In Psalms 106:8, the psalmist writes: Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. The Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43:25, "I even I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins." And as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 1, verse 5, he tells us that Jesus adopted us according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. And finally, in Romans 3.25, Paul writes, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a fancy word for payment by his blood through faith to demonstrate what? His righteousness. So I ask it again, what is the glory of God and what does it mean to glorify him? I can't tell you. I'm here to tell you that I can't tell you. And and I it's funny I've been in ministry for 15 years and this just occurred to me. This is why knowing Jesus isn't simply an intellectual pursuit of knowledge. It isn't just simply being able to articulate truths because there's certain things about God that we cannot fully understand. We can start down the road, and that's what we're gonna do this morning, but we can't fully understand. Words fail. And when we're talking about the glory of God, words fail. To think that I could somehow encapsulate the glory of God in one 45-minute teaching, or 50-minute, or an hour and 30-minute teaching this morning, Would be foolishness. Certain things just can't be described. Describe love to me. If you asked what love is and you had 10 different people give you an answer, you'd get 10 different answers, right? Some of them would be closer than others, uh, but if you asked what love is, it would be hard to define it. But We look at the self-sacrificial care of a mom who has a sick child and she's up with that child all night long, knowing she has to work in the morning. Not because it's fun, not because it's easy, but because she loves that child. And what can you do? You can point at that and say, no, that's like love. There's something about that 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 captures a little bit of what love is or you can look at a father who comes home from work and he's exhausted but he's got kids that are excited to see him and he gets down on the floor and he wrestles with them for 30 to 45 minutes not because it's easy but because he loves them and you can look at that and say yeah that's that's kind of like what love is you can see a, a wife whose husband Is diagnosed with a a rare disease and he loses all physical motor skills and he goes to his wife and says you can you need to leave I'm not I'm not asking you and I don't want you to stay by my side you need to go have a life for yourself this is not going to be your life and she says there's no way That covenantal commitment is like love, isn't it? So we can look at those things and say, hey, I can't define love, but look at that. That's kind of like love, isn't it? What about beauty? Can you guys describe beauty to me? Can you define it? Well, I can remember the time my, my wife came through those doors. We got married here. And I can say, yeah, it's like that. I can look at the way you care for one another when someone's hurting, and I can say, yeah, it's like that. Think back to the time your one of your kids was bur- born, and you held that baby for the first time. You're like, yeah, that, I, I get that. We can point to what beauty is it's a lot easier than trying to describe it it's far easier to point to love and to beauty and say that's it than it is to try to describe it with words and that is the best way i can understand the glory of god and what it means to glorify him glorifying god through our unity through the way we love one another through the way we love our enemies through the way we bless those who speak evil about us we are pointing at god and saying yeah that's him that's what he's like it's much more powerful than words isn't it when jesus saved us through his sacrifice on the cross he pointed to the father and said this is him This is what he's like. When he overcame death, when he rose from the grave, he pointed to his father and said, no, this is what he's like. So what's he like? Well, he's holy. There's another word we hear all the time. What in the world does holy mean? It's another attribute of God that we fail to put into words. What's the difference, too, between holiness and the glory of God? Well, the holiness, again, I'm just trying to get us down the road here. The holiness of God is the status of God in relation to other things. How does God relate to other things? He is set apart. There is no one like him. As one author puts it, his perfection, his greatness, and his worth put him in a class of his own. It is in his quality of perfection that can't be improved upon. You can't make God better. He's incomparable, and he's self-existent. He determines all that he is and it's determined by nothing outside of him. Who created God? No one, because he always has been and he always will be. There is none like him. That's what holy means. Holy means separate. And that that word only slightly gets us down the road of understanding what holiness is. So I bring holiness up as well because when Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne in chapter 6 of Isaiah and all the angels surrounded the throne of God what did the angels cry out Isaiah 6:3 one cried out to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his what glory. his glory so set apart set apart there is none like him there is none above him he is a name he is the name of all other names he is the Alpha and the Omega and the whole earth is filled with signposts that point to who he is even in this fallen world God uses his creation to point To him are there distortions of him absolutely that's sin sin tells lies about God that's why sin is so serious but to glorify God is to point to his set-apart nature to point to his holiness to make known his perfection his greatness his worth his forgiveness his love and to say yes he is like that And I get that God would create this vast universe to say, no, I'm big like that, bigger than that, because I spoke it into existence. But here's what I don't understand. Then he would use us, sinful creatures, broken men and women, to also say, yeah, I'm like that too. Not that he's broken, but his spirit dwells within us. In the midst of our brokenness, he makes his name known as he calls a body together, the body of Christ. He makes his name known to the church. And all of that to say, that's what Paul is saying here in verse seven. He says, receive one another, he had just gotten done talking about having one mind, being unified as one body and and, and caring for one another, inviting others into our lives just as Jesus received us to what end? To glorify God. That's what's at stake. So when we talk about unity, we're not just talking about something that we should be doing for the fun of it. We are talking about glorifying God, telling the world, hey, it's really hard to explain with words who God is, but come see. Come see as we take care of one another and love one another. As we lay down our lives for one another. look at verse 8 Paul says now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Keep in mind, Paul's writing to a church that is a combination of Jewish and non-Jewish believers. We talked about it in the men's study on Wednesday night. Not only is it a combination of Jewish and non-Jewish believers, imagine this for a moment. The church in Rome, for five years, Jewish believers were expelled from Rome. You see, Priscilla and Aquila, they're mentioned. They went to Italy because uh, I believe it was Emperor Claudius wanted them out. So for five years, the church in Rome existed without any Jewish influence. Imagine now coming back as a Jewish convert to the church in Rome. There's been no Jewish influence. That church is going to look radically different. They are going to exercise freedoms that you are probably not very comfortable with. They've been going on for five years without any Jewish influence. So Paul is writing to that church that is struggling to make it work, but he reminds them, guys, it was God's plan to save the Gentiles all along to make us one nation. He was grafting those non-Jewish believers into that olive tree. So he goes back to the Old Testament and he quotes a number of Old Testament scriptures. He says, as it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people people and again praise the Lord all you Gentiles laud him all you peoples and again Isaiah says there shall be a root of Jesse and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him the Gentiles shall have hope Paul saying everything is going according to plan so be of one mind That's what's at stake, the glory of God. That's why Paul has spent so much time emphasizing unity in his letter to the church in Rome. And not just to Rome, you're gonna see it in his letter to the Ephesians and Ephesus and his letter to the church in Corinth. But let me pose this question. Does that mean that we pursue unity at all costs? That unity is our highest goal? that we should divide over nothing and put up with absolutely everything. Well, what was the word from last week? Balance. There's a level of tolerance and acceptance that does not honor God. It doesn't glorify God. In fact, it tells lies about God. So, Paul is now going to bring in balance, and that's something that we desperately need. Do we fight to keep the unity of our faith? Absolutely. When it comes to essential issues, we should not divide over personal preferences and separate convictions. But Paul has just given us doctrine and theology that we must stand firm on. And that's why he says in verse 13 now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing notice he says may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and then there's an underlying instruction in believing as we trust him as we hold tight to his promises as we know him and love him May he fill you with all joy and peace, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, Now I am myself, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. Why? Because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, able also to admonish one another. So if we thought unity at all costs, that's not what Paul is saying. That word "admonish" it means to teach, instruct, and uh oh, correct. It means to correct one another. Nevertheless, in verse fifteen, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So here's the balance, guys. Paul just got done talking about the importance of unity, but now he says there is a time to admonish one another, definitely to teach, definitely to, to train up, but also there's a time to correct by the power of the Holy Spirit, full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. And he says, guys, I'm talking, I, I'm emphasizing certain points. Isn't that what he says? I, I speak more boldly in certain areas because Paul knows his audience. He knows that the church in Rome, as the Jews returned, they were erring on a side of the the side of legalism. They were trying to place on these non-Jewish believers burdens that the word of God never asked them to live out, one of which was circumcision, celebration of certain days, certain laws. So Paul says, I'm writing boldly to you in this area because you're going above God's word, you're adding to God's word, and I'm trying to bring you back down. Paul's tone changes and we'll see it as we study 1 Corinthians when he writes to the church in Corinth because they were doing the opposite. Hey, anything goes. Oh, you want to date your husband your dad's wife? Okay. Freedom in Christ. And Paul writes to them in a completely different tone. So understand that Paul's always trying to bring us back to what? The truth of God's word. Sometimes we err on the side of legalism. Sometimes we err on the side of license. But Paul says, I've been more bold in the area of legalism that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles so that they would have an accurate understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. So Paul says, we admonish so, so how do we know? How do we know, know when, because Paul has said three different things. Actually, he's, he said two things and he's gonna say a third thing when it comes to error in the church. One, he says, bear with the convictions of the weak. You guys remember that, right? That we're patient with those who have different convictions about certain things, right? So there's that. But then Paul says, correct. And then later on Paul's gonna say note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them so Paul's saying three different things bear with others be patient with them correct them and don't fellowship with them how do we know when to apply which instruction and that's what Paul's gonna get into look at verse 17 Paul says, therefore, I have reason to glory, glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. He's saying, I have reason to boast in Jesus Christ, but the things I boast in, they pertain to God, meaning what God is doing through Him. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. I'm not going to say anything that I've done in the flesh. I'm not going to talk about anything else or brag about anything else other than what Christ has done in me and through me to make the Gentiles obedient. Verse 19, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to el- el- ill. Why so many consonants in a row? <laughs> you figure it out yourself. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I promise when I come across a word when I'm studying I'll go over the correct pronunciation 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 that's ironic <laughs> pronunciation over and over again and then I get up here and it's gone so So Paul is going to explain to us, how can we be in a place where we know the difference? How do we know when to be patient with one another, when to step up and say, hey, this concerns me, I'm worried about you, and when to say, I'm sorry, I can't fellowship with you. Don't you think that should be, that's probably a vital understanding, don't don't you think, as we gather together? Let me tell you where it starts. Paul says in verse 17, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. He's saying I have a reason to boast. I bring attention to the work that Jesus is doing amongst the Gentiles through me. Do you know Paul loved to brag? He loved to boast. He was a boastful man, but not in the way you would think. He only boasted in two things. He boasted in his own weakness and he boasted in the character and person of God himself and what God was doing amongst the Gentiles and the Jews. He would brag about how weak he was and how strong God was. That's what he boasted about. And that's where we need to be if we think we're gonna handle any of this correctly. We need to think less of us and great Big things about who God is because as soon as we elevate ourselves we've disqualified us we've disqualified ourselves from admonishing one another you know what I've learned those that do not receive admonishment well should not be giving it if we're good at correcting but not receiving correction we're not in a good place Paul, this is an open invitation. He doesn't say, and the deacons will admonish one another or the elders or, no, he says we admonish one another. So humility is, Like John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. That's the place we need to begin. That's what made Paul such a great ambassador for Jesus. He made little of himself and much of God, and he lived that out. He didn't trust in his own strength. He knew how weak and flawed he was. He knew what it meant to restore a brother in the spirit of gentleness, knowing that he himself could go down that very same road. He wrote to the church in Philippi that everything he could boast of in the in a worldly sense—his degrees, his social status, his bloodline—he counted it all as refuse, as trash, as dung, as waste. It's a complete loss, he said, for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He gave up his pride. All the things that his culture would say hey that's what gives your life meaning and value that's what gives you a voice that's why people should trust you he said no that's nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ and then late again Romans he's late he's in the late stages of his ministry and it's in Romans that he writes man the things that I want to do I'm still having a hard time practicing and the things that I don't want to do I find myself still doing Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to my Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, and he said to me, my grace, because Paul pleaded, he had this thorn in his flesh, we don't know exactly what it was, and he begged the Lord to take it away. And finally, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. To admonish well, we must be able to receive admonishment. We must be able to come in with this heart of humility and know that God is great and we're flawed. Too many professing believers make much of themselves and very little of Jesus. We hide our weaknesses, we elevate our strengths. And when that happens, we are not pointing to God. We are pointing to ourselves. That is the opposite of glorifying God. What did Satan desire when he was still in heaven in fellowship with God? He desired to be worshiped as God. And he fell like lightning from heaven. Because that's living in a wrong relationship with reality. Who are we that God would be mindful of us? So let me give you an example. That's all, that's all great. That's all um, a framework for correction. Can I give you a, a very real example of Paul living this out? Look at Galatians chapter two, verse 11. This is when we correct. When someone is living in a way that is telling lies about who God is, and I mean living. I'm not saying they they made a mistake and they stumbled, but their lifestyle, they're habitually repeating an action claiming to be a follower of Jesus, maybe very well born again, but they're living out something that is lying about who God is and what the gospel message is. And Paul had to call out Peter for this very thing. Another one of the apostles. In galatians two eleven, paul writes about this he says now when peter had come to antioch i had to get in his face <laughs> he said i withstood him to his face now let's not think that that was a um a prideful getting in his face he's saying we had to have a one-on-one i had to pull him aside and that's how these corrections should go not hey i've been talking to like seven other people about what you're doing and we're all pretty sure that you should stop is that the biblical precedent that Jesus gave us? No, you, the one who has been offended go, goes to the one who has committed the offense. Hey, can I talk to you? Because he, he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. And who were these certain men? Jewish leaders from the early church in Jerusalem. Before they showed up, he was eating with the Gentiles, as he should have been. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. He started to care too much about what these men thought of him eating with non-Jewish people. And the rest of the Jews, look at what happened. Peter started influencing the actions of other Jewish believers. They also played the hypocrite with him. So that even barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy these are like men of the faith these are guys we would look at and say man i wish i could live that kind of life of sacrifice and they fell into this trap and paul saw it happening when i saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel that's it guys if you want to underline what correction looks like and why we should correct underline that statement I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel put another way they were not glorifying God they were not pointing at God and saying God is like this instead they were misrepresenting him that somehow the Gentiles were less than that's the story they were telling and here's men of God telling lies about how God feels about these new non-Jewish converts that's a big deal and we need to look in the mirror sometimes and say am I telling lies about how God feels about others through the way I interact with other people Paul said they weren't telling the truth not in word but in actions and I said to Peter before them all if you being a Jew live in this manner live in the manner of Gentiles not as the Jews why then do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews we who are Jews by nature are and not sinners of the Gentiles knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So can I bring this into modern times? People have taken issue, let's say there's a couple who's living together and they wanna serve in a ministry. We won't allow it. And from the outside, the world looks at that and they're like, man, how legalistic is that? Well, no, our responsibility is to tell the truth about who God is and what his love is like, and his love is a covenantal love. That's the story we need to tell each other and that's the story that we need to tell our kids. So if people are living in, in relationships where it's not simply God's definition of covenantial love between a husband and a wife, then we can't in good conscience elevate that and say, oh no, that's okay. We're telling a story here and it's vital that God, that God is glorified. Do we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. But does that mean we don't try to pursue? So it's not about loving people less or trying to make people jump through hoops It's about glorifying God to that end. Paul admonished Peter and said, I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Not necessarily in what Peter was teaching, but it was the way Peter was living. You are misrepresenting God, Paul said. In Galatians 1.6, Paul writes, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you Let him be accursed as we have said before So now I say again if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received Let him be accursed Why was Paul so concerned about a a different gospel? Because if you add anything to the gospel or you take anything away, it's no longer the gospel gospel means good news and if you take anything away from the gospel, it's not the good news anymore because it doesn't save. So, for the sake of time, if you get a chance, read Romans 20 through 33. It highlights Paul's deep desire to go to Rome. He says, I want to join you, my heart longs to be with you. And then he closes his letter, letter here in Romans 16. And we don't have time to look at all of these names, but we see that Paul had personal relationships with over 22 different people that were now in Rome. And he greets them in the closing of his letter. But I want to look at a few names. In verse 1, chapter 16, he says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centuria, which was one of the ports in Corinth. He says that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and I and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed she has been to me a helper of many and of myself also. So there's a good chance that Phoebe is the one carrying this letter to the church in Rome. It just kind of gives a, a name to that, that individual. He says receive her. Here's my letter of recommendation. Fold her into the church. I don't want her staying at hotels. Hotels back then were usually either brothels or bars. They were marked by uh, sin and stealing. And he says, no, she has a home. And that's with you guys. Fold her into the fellowship. She's our, our sister. She's family. Even though you've never met her, it's family. She's your sister in Christ. And then he says in verse 3 greet Priscilla and Aquila my fellow workers in Christ who risk their own necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks but also all the churches of the Gentiles and again Priscilla and Aquila's name they come up in the book of Acts they were fellow tent makers in Corinth with Paul who had escaped Rome when Claudius had kicked out all the Jews and now they had returned But they had traveled with Paul to Ephesus at one time, and if you recall, they had led Apollos to the Lord, and Apollos became a very effective teacher and preacher and evangelist. They may not have been Big Ten evangelists, but they played a vital role behind the scenes. And Paul understands the fruit of their surrendered lives that they were willing to risk it all so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forward. So I want you to close now with me in verse 17. Because we've covered unity in the faith, being patient with one another. We have different convictions sometimes. We, we seek to honor God in different ways and we should be patient with one another. Some of you may draw lines of conviction differently than others. Some of you allow certain shows that others do not. Some of you um, listen to certain worship teams that others can't listen to. Um, And that's fine. We're growing together in all of this. We honor God in different ways. And Paul says, be patient with one another. Remain unified. Don't let those be issues that you get divided over. Understand what the essentials are. And he's given us the essentials, hasn't he? The church in Rome is literally holding the essentials. And then he says, if someone is misrepresenting God, go to them, correct them, admonish them in love, knowing that you full well could fall into that very same sin and you are probably dishonoring God in other ways also. But now he says there is an extreme where you can no longer fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ. And what is that time and place? Look at verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. So there are those who will come into the church, and what is their primary agenda? To take. I'm going to get something. I want to feed my own belly, I want my name to be known. And it's interesting that Paul couples that with the fact that they speak with smooth words. They're very convincing, sometimes charismatic, and they flatter those around them and they steal people's hearts, those whose hearts are simple and they lack discernment. And Paul says, no, don't fellowship with them. There's no room for that in the body of Christ. We have that very dramatic example in Ananias and Sapphira who appeared in the early church and they wanted people to think that they were as generous as everybody else. They wanted to appear rather than be. And God sent a very clear message in that moment. Now again, does that mean that anyone who has a little bit of pride needs to leave? This would be an empty room. But there are some that would come into the flock looking to steal to take to sow discord the enemy desires to do that right and would he not influence those who do not love Jesus and desire to see Jesus's name glorified wouldn't he operate in the fashion where he'd influence those to come into our fellowship, come into the body of Christ, come into the American church, the the global church, and so a message that is not the gospel. I Look at what Paul says. He says, note those. I'm sorry, but that means name those. And sometimes, I get it, we get this wrong um, as Christians. Like I've said before, we are the only ones, and I didn't make it up, it's something that had been said before, that we are the, Christians are the only ones that organize. What's it called when you line someone up to? A firing squad, there it is, thank you. We are the only ones that organize a firing squad in a circle. Think about that for a second. We take shots at one another. But there is a time where the gospel has been perverted that we need to call it out. And we need to make clear, humbly, that this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel does not promise health, and wealth it promises something far far greater and that's a relationship with god so if we name a a movement that many people are falling into it's not because we think we're better it's a warning those who cause divisions and offenses, those who stir up conflict through gossip and backbiting, constant complaining, sin-sniffing. Their goal is to stir up strife. Do not... Fellowship with them he says in Titus 3 9 avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless warn a device a person once and then warn them a second time and after that have nothing to do with them you may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and they are self-condemned some people are just looking for a fight Those are those who cause divisions. And those who cause offenses, they set traps. They place stumbling blocks. They look at a church and they say, who can I exploit? Your heart breaks when you hear about the stories of just broken people getting involved in ministries just to exploit the weak and the helpless and the vulnerable. Paul says do not fellowship with them all right let's close Paul says for your obedience has become known to all therefore I am glad on your behalf but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil if you walk away with just one thing this morning will you walk away with Paul's words here I want you to be wise in what is good set your mind On Things above not the things below whatever is good true normal uh, Noble Set your mind on those things Don't spend your days learning about everything that goes on in the dirt darkness It's okay. Like pastor John says keep one eye open be aware, but don't be living in the darkness What we need to know is how do we show people the path out of the darkness make sure we understand the gospel of jesus christ people need to see the path out of the darkness and the god of peace will crush satan under your feet shortly the grace of our lord jesus christ be with you amen Tim- timothy my fellow worker and lucius jason and sosipater my countrymen they greet you i tertius who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, the host of the whole church, greets you. Aristus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Quartus, a brother, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And let's pray together, but let's pray the Paul the prayer that Paul presents to us in verse 25. Join me in prayer. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.